0: I think it's important for uh, Christian voices to be heard because the scripture says we are to be salt and light in the world. Uh, and You can't be light if you just keep your light hidden in the cabinet, but it, it should be a light that draws people and helps them to see uh, more clearly and not a light that uh, simply just blows out wrath and, and is so tribalistic, regardless of what our... You know, own tribes are, own politics are, those sorts of things. So it's a, it's a difficult time.
1: Today on the podcast, we welcome my friend, Judge Brian Hagedorn. And Brian serves as a Supreme Court justice in the state of Wisconsin. Brian's a friend. I've known Brian for a long time, and I think he has a lot of really interesting insights about what it means to be a Christian in public, what it means to have a vocation to the glory of God, and what does it mean to exist as a Christian in a time that is very divisive politically. We talk a lot about a lot of issues, we learn about his campaign, we learn about his family, we learn about his faith, we learn about his job, and so I'm really thankful for this interview and it was a real privilege to engage with Brian. I hope you enjoy it too. Let me just start by explaining why we're having you on the podcast. Right. And, um, you know, first of all, it's, it's not because you are traditionally Republican, um, it's mainly because you're my friend and we have a lot of history together. Mm -hmm. And, um, one of the things that we really, uh, want to bring to the forefront of our people is that you work a job in the public sphere, almost all of them, even if you're a stay-at-home mom, you know, you're in public in your neighborhood Mm -hmm. and what does it mean to be a Christian in public? Yep. Yep. Um, And I think that's something that you have really unique insight on and especially with your platform and your new position. Um, and so that's why we're having you on and I'm really excited to, to have this conversation with you, but I thought it'd be good just to give people context, let people know like why we even know each other. Yeah. Yeah. You want to start by sharing that story?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I do. Um, so back in 2010, um, and actually, it was funny, uh, Christina and I, my wife, were just looking at uh, the calendar. It was about 10 years ago, almost exactly, that we moved to Madison the first time. Uh, but in uh, 2010, uh, I got a job at the Attorney General's office in Madison uh, as an attorney. And so I was uh, moving to Madison. And we were looking around for a church. And I started, uh, started fishing around a little bit. We were involved in a church and had some affiliations with the Gospel Coalition and Acts 29 and Ended up finding your blog actually. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I reached out to you through your blog. That was the first time, and that uh, we we had connected a little bit, and we ended up I think meeting meeting up in Madison. Uh, in yeah, that's right. Texas. It was at Ian's. That's right. It was down on State Street. It was at the other location there. Yeah. Uh, and so we met and uh, ended up, you know, just being involved in kind of the first core group that uh, planted the vine. We were, the, I think, one of 30 people at the first informational meeting. And, um, you know, we're part of the church for five years. Uh, the time, whole time we were in Madison, and it was just a real blessing, uh, both you and your family as well as the church. Uh, and just so excited to see what God has done at the vine.
1: Yeah. And, and we, uh, for almost five years, we did Date Night Swap.
0: That's right. So that's ne- right. Neither so, one of
1: us could afford babysitters at that time, right. and so <laughs> that's right. Every other Sunday night, like Brian and Christina would have our kids on a Sunday night, and then the next night. And what was really cool is all of our kids are similar stage in life, and um, they just kind of occupied themselves, and that was uh Those are some fond memories of of uh, those days for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: So. Tell us a little bit about your family. What, where, where, um, where are they at right now? What, what are they into? Um, yeah, just let us tell us about your family.
0: Yeah, so we got five kids. Um, we got uh, a, a rising senior in high school. I'll be seventeen here in a, in about a month. And I've got a fifteen-year-old sophomore girl. And we got a. It's always some math here. I got to think through it. But we got a, a 12 year <laughs> twelve-year-old, nine-year-old, and now a, a newly seven-year-old. So youngest. Little girl was adopted. The other four are all our bi- biological children, um, and they're they're doing great. So we we are um, the two oldest ones are in public school here, and um, they are I think doing well, uh, you know, and flourishing and uh, thinking their faith and, and those things as well. We were a part of a, a school here that my wife really had a vision for uh, as well. That's similar to the one that you started. That actually helped inspire us. We were there for a period of time as well. Um, at uh, Karis Classical Academy. And so there's a school here that's a hybrid model uh, school where our kids are in school a couple days a week or in school three days a week or four at home uh, a couple days a week. Uh, and that's going really well. So our kids are um, just a fun time of life, busy time of life, though a little slower during the pandemic, which has actually been kind of nice. Uh, yeah. But um, yeah, so it's a busy full home life. I, you know, I have time for, uh, for work and, and church and Uh, family and not a whole lot else sometimes, but that's okay. I love, I enjoy it.
1: Yeah, that's good. It is, it is such a strange time. Um, I want to ask you about your fifth child. Uh, I know you guys have been passionate about adoption. Mm -hmm. Um, Give us two minutes on why you guys pursued adoption.
0: Yeah. When we first got married, um, we really just had a a vision at some point in our life. uh, We had talked about Would there be an opportunity for us to just love some somebody and some family and meet a need somewhere? That was just sort of a dream that was out there. Then back in 2013, we uh, ran into someone who was doing some foster care, and the Lord just really put it on my heart. And then I talked to Christina that maybe we ought to begin looking into it. And we weren't getting any younger, and we would uh, begin to begin to. go from there and see what might happen and uh, Christina went to work and through kind of a miraculous and amazing situation over about a month or so uh, we ended up getting in contact with somebody down in Illinois where Christina grew up and heard about a woman who uh, was struggling with addiction uh, to drugs and other issues and a a man as well and they were looking for parents uh, for a child they couldn't find anybody Uh, they have prenatal care uh they struggled with some some drug issues during the pregnancy as well and the baby would have been due in just just a couple of months a few months and that was really just an open door that we pursued and the lord gave us this uh this precious little girl lily who's turned seven on the fourth of on the fourth of july so it's a a much longer story but it was a a beautiful um, amazing ride of just seeing god's grace of seeing how god provided for us uh, and uh, God just loved this little girl. so many just different people around her, people at the vine and all over the place who gave generously and prayed, um, cared for her, uh, and she's just a real a real joy and, and treasure to our family
1: but why adoption? like why I mean you can think of reasons not to adopt you can think of reasons to adopt like as you guys sought to discern what was best for your family, why did you guys just think yeah we're we're gonna adopt
0: yeah. Well, I think at the core level, it just goes to our, our call as as people and as Christians to love others, <laughs> at a core level of living out living out the gospel call to uh, care for the world around us and 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 uh, meet needs. And so that was really the kind of driving force, knowing that there are there are children out there who need a good home, uh, who um, need people are willing to step up and serve and uh, get your hands dirty, get a little dirt under your nails with the messiness of life. Uh, we're all called to do that in a variety of different contexts. and That was really just our heart and passion was just, how can we, how can we love people and love the world around us? And God opened this really specific, tangible way for us to, us to serve.
1: Yeah. I love it. Yeah. And we, we, you know, most people know we're, um, we've adopted as well in our family and, uh, You know, what I always say is, you know, I don't think adoption is a command biblically, but I think advocating for the marginalized in our world is a command biblically. And adoption is one really good way you can do that. Yeah. So, not that you have to adopt or anybody should feel pressure, but I think we should all be asking ourselves as Christians, how am I laying down my life for the marginalized? Because we know that is God's heart in so much of the Bible. And so, at least, just wrestling with that question.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, yeah, you can't read scripture without seeing God's heart for those who are hurt or downtrodden, the fatherless and the widow all over the place. So absolutely.
1: That's right. Amen. Well, man, give us, uh, let me back up. Um, I wasn't going to ask you this, but I think as we're sitting here and I know your story, this could be helpful for some people, especially people uh, that have young kids thinking about educational options. Mm -hmm. Um, this can, in some churches, be a really uh, contentious issue, and I say in our membership class all the time, like this is you know there's a lot of issues we divide over as Christians. School choices is not one of them yep. in our church, and so um, we can have convictions about that. It's great to have convictions, but we're just not going to have a policy hit the vine for you have to homeschool or you have to public school or whatever. Yeah, but um, you guys have experienced kind of the three main yeah options in our culture. So you've done homeschooling, you guys have done private schooling and now you're doing public schooling. That's right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We've actually done regular public schooling, charter public schooling and virtual public schooling too. So we just (laughs) got the whole, (laughs) and done the whole gamut.
1: Yeah. So I would just love to hear you reflect on that. And um, you know, there's probably uh, a lot of young families at the vine that are kind of trying to figure out like, um, what school choice should we do? And, yeah. and so it, what, what advice would you give to them? Well,
0: our, our, our approach kind of from the get-go has always been one, one child at a time, one year at a time. Uh, and so uh, I mean, one thing I would say is not every child is different and not every family circumstance is different too. We've had different seasons of our life where- Don't you mean uh, not every child's the same? I'm sorry. Yes, not every child is the same. Sorry, but thank you. Yeah, um, not every child is the same and not every family situation is going to be the same all the time, too, in every season of your life. So I think that's one thing, just big picture thing to keep in mind. Uh, and I agree. I don't think there's any clear biblical command to do one thing or the other. We, we started out homeschooling uh, out of a conviction that we wanted our children from the earliest age to understand that. The whole world uh it must be seen with god at the center and we also had a family situation where christina was able to be home and devote herself to that and was capable and excited and passionate about doing that and so that was uh, kind of a, a, an early season of our life in fact we moved to the private school option too i guess to to throw that out there when we went to keras for a year and that was in part through a, a longer situation dealing with the adoption and so our family situation looked a little different and we looked at how can we best love and care for our children we decided that that would be uh, the best option uh, in that situation uh, we came back to Madison here we did some homeschooling and some virtual schooling as well but then ended up starting a school because we loved the idea of having the benefit of the classroom option there's a lot to be said for having other authority figures in your kids life you know I think the this mindset that uh, that the real christian family looks a little bit like beaver cleaver you know with the, the mom and dad and the kids at home and kind of that's it but but i really think you know historically the sort of individualism of western culture is a bit of an anomaly that no- normally uh, you do want other authority figures in your life through the church through your community through your extended family there's a lot to be gained from that and so um, and you can do that homeschooling as well and we we did that as well but um we found a lot of benefits from the classroom option uh, and, and that served our kids well. In high school, I truth, I wish there were some better high school options around here, but with praying about it and considering where our kids were at, we decided that the public school option would would be uh, would be a good option. And I think it what that's been also interesting because it involves a lot of conversations that we didn't have to have before, but that are good conversations. and we can have them in the context of a safe place where uh, at home, where we, we can work through some of these issues and our kids are um, learning to wrestle through the hard things that they, they hear or see that they may not have heard or seen when they were, you know, in junior high or younger. Um, so, you know, I, the whole process of raising children is preparing them to send them out uh, with mm-hmm. and, and to just point them to Christ every step along the way to do that. Uh, some kids might need more protection from the world than others when they're not ready for it. We need to be mindful and intentional and purposeful. Um, and I think you can look a lot of different ways, you know, for, for each family. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's where we're at right now. We'll, I think, continue with the public school for the oldest two kids for right now, the three youngest kids in, our, in the private school where there's a lot of home teaching and um, our kids are walking with the Lord and that's serving them well. So we're, we're really happy to be doing that.
1: Yeah I I really appreciate your answer Brian and we resonate with that um well it's like don't be too dogmatic evaluate your kids one at a time yep. evaluate where they are um the the city you're in I mean there's so many factors there's so many factors and so it's just helpful to hear like there's a spirit of freedom here and ultimately parents you know we're in, we know we're in charge of the education of our kids But there's a lot of different ways to get at that based on context and based on personality and a whole host of other factors. Yep. yep, That's really helpful. Yeah. So, Brian, I want to dive into, you know, just more of your professional life and how you think about that to the glory of God. Um, Because I think that's a really interesting story. And I know you have a lot of really helpful things to share. Why don't you just give us a uh, a quick journey of the last 10 years in your professional life? Because I think that's a, I mean, that's a journey uh, in and of itself. That's quite interesting.
0: Yeah, it's been uh, been a little, been a little interesting and quite, quite momentous. Yeah. I, so I started out when I came to Madison. I, I got a job at the attorney general's office, uh, just representing the state. Um, and, uh, and in the fall of 2010, there was uh, an election and Scott Walker gets elected governor. Uh, and even though I had only been, been at the AG's office for five or six months, I uh, really liked the governor and a uh, governor-elect and ended up getting some people who recommended me to him and interviewed with him. And I ended up becoming Governor Walker's chief legal counsel from the very beginning and did that for almost five years. And that took me through, uh, through 2015. And then at that point, the governor appointed me to a judgeship on the Wisconsin Court of Appeals. So there's three levels of the court system, the Supreme Court. Court of Appeals in the middle, and the trial courts um, are the, of the first court you think about, where there's juries and all that sort of thing. Uh, so I was on the Court of Appeals, uh, and then uh, was elected to that position in 2017 on my own. Then in uh, 2019, I was on the ballot, ran for the Wisconsin Supreme Court, as uh, one of the one of the seven members of that court. Won one of the closest elections in history, uh, and uh, that's where I've been sitting, and what I what I did throughout this last year, so. Yeah, it's been amazing. Sometimes I sit back and think about it because, you know, a lot of times with life, you can't, you can't predict where it's going to take you. Uh, you you don't know what's going to happen. You, you sort of follow open doors. And I, I just often have a sense of just real gratitude that uh, the Lord has put me in a position that I don't deserve in so many ways, uh, but that God has decided to place me here with an opportunity to serve. Uh, so I just feel very blessed with the positions that I've had and been able to do that.
1: Yeah, why did you aspire to the Supreme Court of Wisconsin? Like, if you could break it all down, like what what's what's the the driving um, motivation there? When I went to law school, I, I mean, I really developed a conviction about the
0: the rule of law, um, and I know that may sound like a, a nice campaign slogan or things that people throw around, but you know, our freedom. Uh, really depends, uh, in large part, on a, our constitutional order working well, and the flourishing of our country, the uh, flourishing of people and society. You know, we've got a system that has three branches of government. It's it's basic civics, but it really matters. Do you have a legislature that decides what the law is going to be? The executive, who carries it out, and the judiciary that says what the law is. And I, so I really developed a passion for that. I actually didn't really think about being a judge until I had the opportunity to clerk on the Wisconsin Supreme Court right before moving to Madison full-time. Uh, and I had the opportunity to serve there. And I realized that I, I loved the word because you get all of the interesting hard questions. I mean, the only things that come to the Supreme Court are the things that we want to be there. We, ha- we, don- we don't have to take any cases. We choose the cases we take. And they're all the hard cases. And then I get to read and write and think and try to do it well. And I think if we do our job well and stay in our lane and do it faithfully, do it with integrity, that blesses everybody in the state. It, it, it leads to the flourishing of the whole constitutional order and our freedom and the private orderings of business, the religious freedom of, of individuals and organizations to, um, you know, everything, the way we solve our problems divisive political policy issues that have always been fights in our time. So that was really honestly that drive, that that, that big picture. And um, I guess I've sort of had this mindset, though praying about it uh, all the way along the way and seeking advice from spiritual mentors and pastors and leaders, uh, is how can I take the gifts that I have and use them to their best to serve and love other people to the glory of God? And that has often meant pursuing, uh, I guess, pursuing positions that, um, you know, that have maximal influence because I feel like then I have the opportunity to serve at an even higher level, which comes with a lot of responsibility, like being a senior pastor, of doing that. But it's an opportunity to really shape and influence the things that you are gifted in and have a passion for.
1: What would you say to those that feel threatened by your Christian faith? like I can anticipate the objection of like, well, Brian, you're in this position of very unique authority in the state of Wisconsin. And how dare you force your Christian views on us in the public sphere? Yeah. I can anticipate that objection. Yeah. Um, how how do you talk about that?
0: Sure. Well, let me say two things about that. The first is uh, I, I don't think that anyone should be Worried or afraid about people who want to do their job with integrity in public office. I mean my 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 faith leads me to Try to be principled in what I do. Um, It means I'm not beholden to anybody or anything in this world. (laughs) I Actually have a higher calling and so when I say uh, That I'm gonna try to follow the law whether I like the law or don't like the law That's what I'm gonna do and I don't care uh, about the earthly consequences of those things. I feel like I can do that fearlessly and with integrity because um, my faith roots me in, into a higher calling. It means I treat people with integrity in uh, dignity and respect. It means um, I see this as an opportunity to serve and not just for my own betterment or my own advancement. So those are the things that that drive me as a Christian. I, I guess the one other thing I would, I would point out, though, I think if anybody would feel that way, I do think that that impulse needs to be checked. There is a rising uh, kind of uh, um, just hit on those who are Christians in particular. That was true in the early church, too. In the the early church, the Christians were blamed for all kinds of stuff. And I think for those who might come from that mindset, I guess you'd ask, why would would you feel that way? Why would you feel that way and not feel that way about about other people who come from other different worldviews, whether other religious face or or who are atheists or who have any other kinds of perspective why would you feel that way in particular about about christians and i think people need to kind of check their impulses with that there is a a rising anti-christian sentiment that you find in the public sphere that is not right and and i encourage people to to take another look at that so you know, and I, and I hope over time people will see that um, I am doing my job with integrity and respect and they would want uh, everybody uh, in this position. And, and I, let me add one other thing. As a judge in particular, as a judge in particular, I don't come bringing my personal um, views to bear on everything. I have certain views about how I might conduct my own life and ethics and morals and how I think the world ought to operate. But that's actually not what judges do. The judges apply the law that the people have adopted uh, through their legislature and through the constitution. And the oath that I've sworn and the charge that people have given me as a Supreme Court justice is actually a pretty narrow. It's to apply the law that they've already decided on, uh, not to make it up on my own. So what happens when, uh,
1: so what happens when you, um, I mean, I can imagine many scenarios where there is a law that's been dictated by yep. the legislative branch right. that you don't like and so i mean i'm sure maybe you've already come across that and it, and it grates against your yep. worldview as a christian um how do you think about that yep. how do you process yep. that yep. And Endure that's yeah,
0: a great question
1: um well and, and first of all
0: that happens all the time and you know, i've been a judge for five years i was in the court of appeals for four years and i might for example, see a law I don't like, or see a sentence that was handed down that I thought might be too harsh, or something along those lines. Part of it is also, I think, understanding your role in the system and and having the humility to not feel like I need to have everything figured out. Um, so, I, I let me start start mm. from from that presumption. I. I um, I think as long as I'm not cooperating with evil (laughs) in some significant way, I can do my job significantly. But because when a case comes before me, I'm not saying, I'm not declaring, I think this is good. I think this is bad policy. I'm saying, here's what the law is. And in some ways, even if the law is a bad law, or I don't like the politicians who passed it, I might vote differently in the, in the next election to throw them out of office if I don't like them. That's the outlet. And if I do my job well, it might spur a change in the law by those who are democratically elected to do, to make that kind of change. So, you know, even if I'm saying, hey, guys, here's what the law is that you passed. Uh, I'm not here to say whether it's good or bad. That frees up the democratic process to play out and have that discussion and maybe force a change in a way that respects. The rule of law. I don't feel like, though, I've ever come across a situation where where I feel like I'm so entwined with or cooperating with evil in some way, and maybe I have to seriously consider recusal and not sitting on a case in that situation. But that that hasn't happened, um, and I don't foresee it happening, um, you know, anytime necessarily in the in the near future. Again, because of the nature of of what I'm doing, I'm saying what the law is not whether I think it's good or bad and how it ought to play out in that situation, so.
1: Yeah, that's that's really, really interesting. Um, so you there was recently a situation, again, like Brian, you know, I'm not one that's poring over uh, political headlines, but uh, I, I heard from some people that do spend more time in those uh, spheres that there was a recent case uh, having to do with COVID-19 and legislation, right? where um, I, the impression I got and I want you to clarify this or maybe summarize was that uh, we need to stay in our lane. Um, is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I
0: can't talk too much about the specifics of the case, but yeah, I was brought by the the legislature um, suing the, the the governor and other folks to try to stop the, the statewide orders over that. And, and I um, issued a decision that maybe some people who supported me, um, not as not as pleased with because that and you know from my perspective i was just trying to follow the law uh, as i saw it here's here's what my job is i'm reading the law i'm trying to do it as faithfully as i can here's the outcome without regard to who the parties are without regard to the political fights that are obviously intertwined and all that stuff Um, and so yeah i got some criticism for that uh, but and again, I hope over time people see that I'm gonna do my job with integrity and with faithfulness, and I'm not gonna put a thumb on the scale for any political party, um, regardless of what my own views are, or for any policy, regardless of what my own views are, because that's not really what judges in our constitutional system are supposed to do.
1: Yeah, that's so refreshing, So refreshing, Brian. Okay. And I, um, yeah, I'm just so thankful that uh, you, you took that stand. And it was such a unique example of people in your position don't always have to, or people with your size of influence, let me say it that way, don't always have to just follow the party lines. And it's, it's, it was very refreshing in some unique kind of way to see people that probably didn't vote for you, commending yeah. you. Um, like that is very rare, I think, in our political culture. And just to have an example of that, um I think it was very refreshing. Um, and I know that probably doesn't please those that um, that maybe voted for you or would traditionally be Republican. but, man, there there's um there's so much to say here, of course, and there's details. and um, but that that was really refreshing to me it, to see. For people to see that you were driven by conviction and not simply ideology of a certain political party. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. um,
0: Just when I was running for office, too, and one of the things that I think drives me as a Christian is, uh, too, is I think Christians should be the most fearless people around. (laughs) Because in the end, our hope isn't in this life. (laughs) So, I don't need to care that much about my next election in 10 years, you know, I mean, I, I sort of resolved and I've even said to my wife, I mean, you know, if, if God wills it, I, I you know, may run again and maybe I'll win and serve on the court for a long time. But if for some reason um, it doesn't turn out that way, that's fine, um, I'm, I'm not gonna worry about that. I wanna be able to put my head down at night with knowing that I've done my job with integrity. Um, and uh, I feel like I did that in that case, and I'm going to try to do that in all of my cases, even when I get criticism on, on all different sides. And um, that's that's what we all should be doing. I hope, I hope we all expect that of all of our judges.
1: Yeah, I want to go back to the the fear about you having a a position of unique authority in the state of Wisconsin, wedded to your Christian worldview, and how that might make people anxious or nervous. And I think what I would want to say is no matter who you are, it's impossible to not have a worldview. Right. And so how do we determine which worldviews make us nervous and which ones don't? Do we have a set of principles that we draw upon or is it just simply you have to agree with me and that's it? Yeah. And I just feel like one of the things that's unique about the Christian worldview is that there should be a mechanism to squash the revenge impulse. Mm. And that's one of the things that I'm so concerned about in our culture right now is um, the revenge impulse. And you can see it in the Middle East with endless fighting over and over again. And a lot of that I think is tied to a culture of Islam where to not seek revenge is actually shameful for many people. And, and that may be a generalization, but I think it's, if you lived in the Middle East and talked with people that know Middle Eastern culture or culture of Islam, they would say that's generally speaking true. But if we're just in endless cycles of revenge, like, man, I, I I think Donald Trump is a complete lunatic. And so if he's voted out of office, man, we're just going to get those people back that voted him into power. And uh, if that's the mindset, man, like there's no hope. I think for our, our our culture to get out of an endless cycle of revenge, and is that good for a society that seeks to flourish? And my thought is no. But here's what I would say that's unique about the Christian worldview: is what worldview? And this is what Tim Keller says, and I'm, I'm persuaded by it. What worldview has the conviction and the belief? That God Himself lays down His life for His enemies, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and so I'm I'm running the risk here of preaching a sermon. So that's not what we're here for. Yeah, preaching. But, no, but but, preach it <laughs> but, but I, that's what I you know going back to that whole issue of why should I fear Brian Hagedorn? Well, um, if you really know his worldview and sat down and actually talked to him about his worldview, um, not that you would necessarily agree. But maybe there's uh, some convictions there would, that would enable you to have less fear. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think?
0: Yeah, that's that's right. And uh, I mean, I think that Christians ought to ought to approach the world and the people around us. We ought to be marked by you know the, the Christ likeness that, that loving your enemies, humility, patience, um, you know, love, commitment to the truth. Uh, and I, I certainly hope that. Um, that would mark Christians and the way we engage in public debate and the way we think about, uh, the world, the world around us. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there are always people who are going to call you names and there's some people, I mean, let's just be honest. There's some people out there who really just don't like Christianity and that, that is what it is. But for those who I think, uh, might have a more open mind on these things, you know, Christians, uh, Rightly done are the people who are loving and sacrificing and caring for the poor and treating people with integrity and um, and again that I hope that drives everything that I that I do uh, and will continue to drive everything that I do not not sort of making much of myself but being making much of God uh, as much as I can by being faithful to the oath that I have and doing it with integrity um, you know, day in day out.
1: Yeah, that's really really beautiful, Brian. Um, let me ask you this. Imagine you're sitting down with your kids that are going to, apart from some major shifts in our culture, grow up into an environment that is extremely divisive politically. Yeah. What advice do you have for them in terms of how to carry themselves or think about living in that culture that, uh, you know, in some, I think some days feels hopelessly divisive and angry? and um, lacking in civility. How do yep. you disciple your kids um, to live in this world like that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, several, several things on that. Number one, I, I agree that that's where we're at and it's sad, but I think one thing I would, I would note is just some historical context. And that is uh, politics and policy and social division is pretty normal, <laughs> and it's pretty normal throughout American history. And it's pretty normal throughout world history. I do think we're at a a uniquely divisive moment, but uh, and it's one that's been building for some time. You know, I think I remember when Bill Clinton was the most polarized president in history, and then George Bush was the most polarizing president in history, and then. Barack Obama is the most polarizing president in history, right? And you know now Donald Trump is the most polarizing president in history, or something like that, right? But, uh, but politics has been messy for some time. Policy disagreements have been messy for a long, long time. And a quick read of history will will play that out. So some of it is just remembering the context, and some of it is okay because there are actually real issues, real significant things that matter that we ought to have. Uh, disagreement about and we ought to be able to have public debate about but in terms of the way we carry ourselves, I think the the big piece and actually I just had this conversation just the other day with my son as he was interacting with some people but um, is is starting with with the with the presumption and and, and the conviction that we need to act like Christ Uh, we need to and that means really carrying ourselves with humility Mm -hmm. not feeling like we have all the answers there are smart people who believe very differently than we do, well, no matter what your politics are, no matter what your views are on different issues, who you probably have something to learn from. So instead of spouting your opinions, ask questions. Amen. <laughs> Amen. Seek to understand a little bit. Be patient and be charitable with people. You know, I think one of the things that ought to drive us is conviction and, and a reminder. And I don't know if the, if the internet seems to exacerbate this, but we forget that we're dealing with people. Regardless of what you think of uh, President Obama, he was a person who ought to be treated with dignity and respect. Regardless of what you think about Donald Trump, he's a person. How we speak about people, how we um, speak about those with whom we disagree um, matters. And, And we wanna value their image bearingness. They have been made in the image of God. And whether it's the poor or the marginalized, or the most powerful people on earth. We want to love all of those people. That doesn't mean, though, that we need to be squishy or that we need to fail to be committed to the truth. You know, First Corinthians 13 says, you know, love uh, does not rejoice in wrongdoing, uh, but rejoices with the truth. And so that also needs to, to mark it. We, we should not be, uh, I would not want to see Christians also shrink back from speaking in culture. I think it's important for uh, Christian voices to be heard because the scripture says we are to be salt and light in the world. Uh, and you can't be light if you just keep your light hidden in the cabinet. But it, it should be a light that draws people and helps them to see um, more clearly and not a light that uh, simply just blows out wrath and, and is so tribalistic, regardless of what our you know own tribes are, our own politics are, those sorts of things. So it's a, it's a difficult time. Um, and uh, I don't I don't have a lot of easy answers for it other than I'm going to do my best to try to engage that way and train my kids that way and try to embody that.
1: And what you're talking about is just a a baseline culture of civility. Yeah. And yeah. Um, it seems sad that that's what we're grasping for. You know, that, that, yeah. that should be like low-hanging fruit. Um, right. But it, it right. doesn't seem like it is. And but again, going back to worldview issues, What you're saying is, you know, what worldview can actually enable you to not speak um, in pejorative terms about someone on Twitter all day long? Or, Mm -hmm. you know, like the, the doctrine of the image of God marking human beings should enable us to be on the front lines of a culture of civility as Christians, of just basic respect I don't need to devolve into name calling, and, but I can actually listen um, and actually speak with uh, the truth, but also the way I speak the truth with, with my timing, okay. with my tone. And so what worldview can enable a vision of human beings that, that have true value and should be treated with respect? Now, I can anticipate the objection how come Christians don't actually behave like that? And it's like, well, yeah, we don't have, like myself, our church, you, your church, your your family, we don't have to be defensive, right? Um, right. There's there's plenty of examples of Christians just acting like complete jerks uh, or people yep. that at least name the name of Christ. Yep. But I would say it's not a, the fault of Jesus or the Christian worldview. It's that those folks aren't acting Christian enough.
0: Yeah yeah I, I I agree. Obviously, there are always there are always those who name the name of Christ who I think uh, unfortunately um, can make Christ look less beautiful uh, uh, to to the world. Um, uh, but I would also you know point out that Christ loves his church, and there are lots of Christians who are doing this well
1: and doing. Amen. It, really.
0: uh, and so just because there's some people who name the name of Christ, it doesn't mean that that needs to be, who are, who are maybe not handling themselves well. Doesn't mean um, that there aren't others who are. You know, I really think uh, it's incumbent upon people like you. you, um, It's pastors to to train and equip their people, uh, to model this kind of behavior, and to teach them how to engage well uh, in in a world like this. Uh, and would love to see more, more of that happen as
1: well. Yeah, that's one of the things that's grieved me about the COVID situation and how divisive it's become is I feel like some of the Christian voices that are people that I know personally or people that I don't more from afar, I just want to say, remember, that like, we're called to be salt and light. So it's not that you can't have your convictions but we need to be more reflective on what is the way in which my, my convictions get articulated. Right. You know, the words I use, the tone I use, the forum and the context. Is Facebook or Twitter the right context for that? I would say probably right. not. Um, right. But yeah, it's just yeah. like, uh, I, you know, I'm talking to Kim about this a lot lately. Just, man, is the church being salt and light in this time? You
0: know right you know when I was younger I remember um, in high school I was kind of uh, and, and maybe younger maybe a little after that too um, for a period of time but I, I enjoyed arguing
1: mm. <laughs> me too, me and, too. I
0: pro- and I was probably kind of a hard nose on stuff and I remember going on a missions trip in college <clears throat> where this missionary was praying for us. And he, he just prayed and he just had this this word from from the Spirit and he said you know Brian you have a, a prophetic voice but remember it needs to be rooted in a love for God's people mm-hmm. love for other people
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: and I I that always stuck with me because it was a word I needed to hear mm-hmm. uh, and you know when 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 we are motivated by love. Um, And I was just having this conversation with my with one of my kids who was having a debate about economic policy. Mm -hmm. And somebody was making an argument about, well, we need to do this because, you know, this will help the poor. And and um, and, you know, there was a response. Well, maybe. um, Well, here's why maybe it's bad and the X, Y, Z I said, well, Remember that you actually care about the poor too, right? Right. (laughs) So whatever your views are on this thing, however you're working through it, I hope that your love for those who are struggling is the motivating factor for whatever policy decision you're going to work through and come out with and that you communicate that with other people. Right. Um, Because when you start there, Arthur Brooks uh, was at AEI, just wrote a book all about loving your enemies. It's a title. It's out of a think tank dedicated to free market ideas, conservative ideas. And his idea was, you know, his, his main thing was just, we need to love, we need to love one another. We need to love um, everyone around us and that ought to drive us. And that's right. That is right. Mm
1: -hmm. So let's, this has been really good conversation, Brian. And I so appreciate it. Um, Let's take it a little, uh, a little lighter. Um, Cause I'm just curious and I'm sure other people are curious because uh, the Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin aren't like on the front page of the news all the time. So a lot of people are probably ignorant. Right. About, like, what does your day-to-day life actually look like? Like, what do you do all yep. day? Yep. Uh, do you sit around in a robe and <laughs> like read books and and think deep thoughts? Like, what does your day-to-day life look like as a Supreme Court justice?
0: Yeah, well, if you take off the robe, it's not that far <laughs> off. But, <yeah. laughs> Um, yeah, so big big picture, of the way the court system works. There's you know there's a federal system and a state system, um, and in the state system, uh, as well as the federal system, you've got three levels. As I mentioned, the trial court. So that's where cases first go and are decided. You know, and in, in Madison, there's the Dane County Courthouse. So if you were having a real estate dispute or a contract dispute or whatever the sort of issue, that's where you'd go first. And then then when those cases are decided, they go up to the court of appeals, which makes sure that the Decision was made consistent with the law. And then it could come up to the Supreme Court. So, um, big picture, our job is to, uh, we've come to two main jobs. One of them, constitutionally, we actually oversee the whole court system, the whole practice of law in Wisconsin as well. So, we have a lot of administrative responsibilities. But in terms of deciding cases, we decide cases where the law needs to be clarified because it's um, generally speaking unclear or there's significant cases of statewide we get all the hard stuff which is uh which is the fun the fun part. So what do I do every day? I read and I write. Mm. that's mm. predominantly what I do. We do have oral argument where I put on the robe and you know I uh, I guess uh, this spring I did it from this very spot sitting at my uh you know makeshift uh, former basement bar in the basement <laughs> at my desk. Um and uh, you know, throw on the robe and walk down the stairs. But uh, <laughs> you know, most of most of what I'm doing is I'm 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 reading and I'm writing. So I'm, I'm reading the arguments. We we have uh, briefs that are provided by the parties. I'm studying those issues. I'm reading cases. I'm reading the law. I'm pulling out the statute books and reading the Constitution, and trying to come up with the right answer. Uh, and then once we basically what we do, it's kind of like math. You know, you have to show your work. So we write opinions. Mm-hmm. I write all the time explaining, here's the outcome of the case, or how I think the case should have come out, and here's why that is. And we put that out there for people to read and to guide lower court decisions. And all the lower courts need to follow what we say, and so it's important for us to be clear and to be very precise uh, in, in what we're saying. This spring, a lot of it happened sitting underneath uh, the maple tree next to my house, uh, which is not, not bad, but uh, yeah, so. It's, uh, it's a great job. I love what I do day in and day out. Cases are interesting. They're really hard. They're really challenging. They can be weighty, um, emotionally weighty uh, too. I definitely feel that at times, uh, but I love the writing. I love the thinking. Uh, and so it's a real real privilege to do it.
1: Can you, is it legally appropriate? Maybe it's not. So just tell me if it's not to like give an example of a time when you really were stressed out with a certain case, um, Paint paint that picture for us.
0: Well, sure. Maybe without being, you know, Uber specific, uh, you know, I, it's. I'm very clear, and I, I know we know that the decisions we make have huge consequences, right? I mean, even the one you were mentioning earlier. You know, it's not not unmindful of the fact that you're dealing with huge decisions that can affect people's lives, uh, that can affect the way government operates, that affects the way whole areas of law are developed, and therefore how justice is meted out to individuals all across the state. Uh, in some cases are really hard. <laughs> you know, the way that plays out sometimes for, for me when I just feel it is, is, uh, oh, this is probably true for pastors and other people in leadership yeah. positions, is I'm laying at night in bed and it's just running through my mind. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, Christina even said to me early on when I started this job, she would laugh but not really laugh because she'd be talking to me and I'd be looking at her, acknowledging her. But not really listening. To You're not really things present. has <laughs> <laughs> like, hello. You know? yeah. um, because my mind just going, or I'm feeling the feeling the weight of what we're doing. And again, I, I don't want to say I'm, I'm not a terribly emotional person uh, in, in a lot of ways, and that doesn't drive my decision-making, but um, you really want to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, you really want to get it right on this, and you want to do it well. And... This is unlike a math problem when you know you've got it right. Exactly. This is sometimes. This is a little bit more art than science. Sometimes. I mean, I think well, there's a lot of science to it. I mean, they're really, I think, are correct or mostly correct or much more likely to be correct answers. Mm You don't. You don't have uh, an answer key somewhere all the time. We are the answer key, Uh, and so that's what makes it uh, makes it challenging. But one of the best ways I've dealt with that, to be honest with you, is is trying to do a better job of getting sleep. Mm. And I, I pretty much always take Sundays off, so I I don't work. I take a Sabbath. Um, I generally work most of the rest of the days a week, but uh, often usually six days a week. But but I try to put it away, and that is really really refreshing for me to just make sure I make uh, you know embrace what the Lord provided as a gift, this opportunity to rest and relax, to spend time with family and focus on him for a day. And that helps recharge me each time.
1: Yeah, I, I really resonate with what you're saying as a pastor. The most stressful times in my life as a pastor have been when you know that you have to make a decision because indecision is also a decision. So you know you have to make a decision, but you also know that you're not God and you're not omnipotent and omniscient. And so, man, I, I could be wrong, um, but I still have to right. make a decision. And the right. decision that I make is going to affect people's lives.
0: That's right.
1: And so I think that's the hardest part about being a pastor that maybe most people don't understand is the weight yeah. of decision-making, uh, yeah. being a still a, a, an imperfect human being. Um, and so those are the things that keep you up at night because you don't want to screw it up and you don't want to affect people's lives in a negative way. And sometimes you just don't have a perfect answer, but you still have to make a decision. And so that's, that's hard. And I hear you saying the exact same thing. Um, along those lines, let me ask you this, Brian, what's one thing about being a Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin that you wish people understood that they probably don't understand? (laughs)
0: <laughs> um I'm going to say you know most people look at the Supreme Court and they think about big political cases. And uh they think uh that uh that, that is what drives the vast majority of what we do and that's how we decide the vast majority of our cases. And that's actually just not true. Mm. Um this this year had an unusual amount of them uh, uh, but uh Out of, you know, 45 cases, there were maybe five of those 45 cases. The rest of our cases are um, often the stuff that people don't pay attention to. And we get along and we cooperate. And even on, you know, sometimes the politically charged cases, it's not like that's the, the, the way people traditionally think of things in terms of dividing the court between conservatives and liberals and the way the media describes it. Defines the way we operate and certainly defines the way we operate on the vast majority of what we do It it doesn't uh, and even the way we vote doesn't really uh, Bear that out. So um, A lot of what we do is just read the law and trying to figure it out uh, And trying to do that faithfully and we work hard to do that and do that well and has nothing to do with You know the the political policy fights, you know that exist.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, so have you ever thought about a different branch of government? Because right now you are responding to lawmakers and having to right. interpret that and enact that with decisions. Right. Being on that side of it. I wonder if that ever makes you think, I wonder if I could be on the legislative slide side so that I could have more of a voice in creating the laws and not just interpreting the laws.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I did work for the governor. So I worked in the executive branch for five years uh, and uh, even though I wasn't on the legislative side per se, I did in that capacity have an opportunity to work on legislation and be involved in advocating for particular views. That wasn't the main part of my job for the governor, but I did do that. Mm-hmm. I, I was involved in some aspects of that. And I enjoyed that. I mean, I've always, uh, I've, I've in the past, uh, you know, had political interests and policy interests. Uh, that is what drove me to public service in the first place um so i really enjoyed that you know this is a but this is a totally different job i tried to make clear when i took that when i took this job at my investiture and other times my times of advocating for specific policy positions that's over that's not what i do right now mm-hmm. but um that doesn't mean i didn't enjoy it when i did it mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know i have no idea what the future holds with that but i'm i'm excited and content to continue doing what I'm doing for as long as god will happen
1: yeah, that's that's a really important clarification. Um, that I think is really good for a lot of people to hear the distinction there in your mind and how that drives your principles moving into the future. Um yeah. you endured a a pretty hectic campaign. I mean, we chatted briefly. I remember talking to your kids when they stopped by the house one time and they were just like Yeah, dad, he uh he's basically stays up all night and like <laughs> he's trying to do his job and he's and he's um you know, trying to campaign. And I mean, that was just madness for you. Like how long was that window of, of kind of madness for you?
0: I want to say it was probably about 10 months uh, of a pretty long period of time. And then the spring is when it really, really ramps up. Uh, So it was three plus months of just nonstop going. Um, And, um, yeah. So it was it was a busy time. But, you know, the whole family was on board and was committed. And I will say, though, even during that time, I did often take Sundays off and I needed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was working morning till night uh, on campaign and work stuff the rest of the time. Right. Uh, but uh, I really did try to take a break and make sure I engaged with my family and, uh, and the Lord and church. And that was, you know, always
1: a non-negotiable for me. What was the hardest part about the campaign for you? Well God it got a little hectic and a little
0: a little nasty um, and uh, in part through the school that um, we were involved in here and in helping to to start that my wife really had a vision for and participated in some of that got some press um, and there was a lot of criticism that in my view um, was, either inaccurate or just sort of a blatant kind of anti-Christian mentality, that this idea that if you're a person of faith, you should not be involved in the public square. Right. And I tried to push back against that pretty, pretty hard, but tried to do it gently and lovingly as best I could. Um, but those were, that was really hard. Um, the hardest part in some ways was when you read these articles in the paper about yourself mm-hmm. uh, and you feel helpless. Uh, I felt like I couldn't do anything, Uh, that uh, I was being maligned, that I was, you know, people were saying things that were untrue about me. Uh, And I was, I could say some things, but I was pretty helpless in being able to give a full-orbed response in a way that would make sense in the context of a campaign and and feeling uh, just attacked. So there were some, a lot of hard days and a lot of hard nights dealing with that. Um, I real for me, I really took a lot of refuge in the Psalms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were actually a great refuge, a great refuge to me because that's a lot of David's life. <laughs> you know, David's life was uh, you know God had called him to this, and it got really hard for him. There were people trying to kill him and attack him, uh, and you know he he's running for his life from Saul and from his son, and he's trying to figure out where's God in all of this. But he always comes back to finding his refuge in God and asking God to just be God and deliver him one way or the other. Uh, and so that that was really where where I rested and whatever the outcome was going to be. Trusting in God that I, I was called to go through this process, whatever it was going to be. I didn't know whether I was going to win or lose. I didn't feel like I had any and have any real sense of that from the Lord. And we didn't have any polls or anything like that either. Um, but um, but I was called to be bold and courageous and to trust in him. And I just kept on calling on God, like, God, don't rise up, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, rise up and defend yourself. If I lose, that's fine, but rise up and defend yourself. Um, and uh, so I prayed that on a regular basis and uh, helped me to just trust in you, no matter what, no matter what insults people hurl my way. Um, so that's uh you know that, that that was really challenging, challenging emotionally, uh, but it was also amazing at the same time. Just like a lot of low points, to see how uh, things respond. I mean, I'm still, to my knowledge, the only candidate in history who's gotten outspent in the Supreme Court race, and I got outspent badly. Mm. Uh, for win. Uh, and there were so many people that just said they were praying for me that had never been involved in politics or any campaign before, who got involved and. Um, who wanted to rise up and express that they thought what was happening was wrong as well uh, and uh, when i had people i wouldn't expect it to say that was a god thing you won because of god and that's it <laughs> so um and of course god's sovereignly in control of all things whether, whether it right. was always but but there's but there was this just you know this sense that there was something amazing that happened there in response to that And it was a real privilege
1: to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, that's an important, I think, nuance for people to hear that if you lose next time, that's also a God thing. That's right. We believe in his sovereignty and and, uh, in his control in this world. Um, But man, that's so um, important, I think, for people to hear you say that how hard that was for you emotionally. And I think we forget that um, people running for office, no matter what, they're human beings. And I also just think of, you know, speaking to the Vine Church and anybody else who wants to listen to this podcast, like our target here is the discipleship of our people at the Vine. And one of the ways we have to disciple ourselves is in biblical wisdom. And I think of um, so often in in our current culture, I think of Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first sounds correct until another Mm -hmm. comes to examine him. And so okay. I think that's just a good lesson for us to, you know, I can read an article about Brian Hagedorn in in whatever newspaper or online, and it might sound like a certain way, but it, it I think biblical wisdom would say, just be careful, be careful that you don't jump to conclusions um, and assume things that you might not really have firsthand knowledge of. Um, I'm not calling us to like endless suspicion at all times, but I think the proverb is, is very, very obviously wise. That um, just be cautious about the conclusions you come to when there's only one voice that you're listening to.
0: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, that's that's right. And you know, the newspapers, in particular, when it comes to legal issues or those sorts of things, tend not to do a very good job. Maybe they're not good at lots of other types of things too, but but when it comes to legal questions or issues, they're particularly not good. But I, but I agree with you. Um, you know, there's this idea of, again, remembering that, that everybody out there in public service is, uh, they're people and we need to love them and care for them in the same way. You know, and I, I've had the opportunity to meet and work with lots of people on both sides of the aisle, um, and there are people who are corrupt, uh, sure, and there are people who have bad motives. And of course, there's always pride and power mm-hmm. that drives um, people. Of course, that doesn't drive politicians any more than it drives uh, people who are <laughs> in business or at home or right. pastors or anybody else either, right? right? The sin, sin issues are the same sin issues. They just might look a little different in the way they play out in the hearts of, hearts of human beings. But I do think that the vast majority of people, um, including in Wisconsin especially, Really do care uh, and are trying to do the right thing, mm-hmm. and I will say that about my colleagues on the Supreme Court, uh, even ones I might disagree with more than other people. They're there because they want to serve. Um, you know, I, I've met the governor in a few occasions, uh, Governor Evers, but he, uh, from all accounts, is somebody who you know I think wants to be somebody who serves and cares for the state. I have worked very closely with Governor Walker; I know him extremely well, um, and whether you agree or disagree with his policies. Uh, he he really did care about the state and he really was trying to do what he thought was the right thing to do and, and serve people. So, um, and I think that's true of most people in, in public service. Maybe not
1: everybody, but most people. Yeah. Well, Brian, this has been such a great conversation. Um, I don't want to keep you any longer. Um, but man, thank you so much for our friendship and for your family. And it's been so cool to see you um, just change and evolve in your career in the last decade. And so I just really appreciate you taking the time to um, share some of your thoughts about living in a, a world that's political and divided with our our, our church and, and how to think about um, the public sphere and serving in the public sphere to the glory of God. So um, thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you. And obviously,
0: I love the Vine and, and you and your family. And uh, excited to see what God's going to do over the next, next decade.
1: Thanks so much for joining us today on the Vine Church Podcast. This is a ministry of the Vine Church in Madison, Wisconsin, www.thevinechurchmadison.org. And you can go to our website to subscribe and listen to other sermons and podcasts in the Vine Conversations series. Thanks again to Brian Hagedorn for taking the time out to engage with us on the podcast. And we look forward to uh, publishing many more episodes in the future. We'll see you next time.